0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here with me, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 57. Open in your Bible to Isaiah 57. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a black hardback one in the rack in front of you. While you're turning it there, let me tell you one other thing happening in the life of our church. On Sunday, not today, a week from today... It's the 2nd of April. We are having our third family dinner. I want you to be a part of this family dinner. Now here, let me tell you what can happen. We put so much effort into getting our entire church family together to talk specifically about what the Bible says a local church is to be. And the first one was terrific. And the second one was terrific. But here is the tendency. The tendency is for for us kind of corporately, sort of as a group, to kind of fade a little bit now and go, well, we've done that. We've kind of get together. I've, I've kind of given time to that. Don't do that. Do not do that. Let's not fade. Let's keep these going. I think actually the next two can be better than the previous two. And I think that for a couple reasons. One, each one builds on the ones that have come before it. So we've built more than we had before these. Another reason, second reason, our elders have gotten to see how these go. And as we've met and talked about that, we've made a few tweaks that we believe will make them better. And so we've learned from what we've done, we've learned together, and we can grow more in these. So don't, uh, don't, don't faith. Let's keep coming to these as a church family. If you haven't signed up, make sure you do today to bring a dish to share. If you go out into the foyer out there, there's a sign on the wall that says family dinner sign up. We were really clever with that sign. That's where you can sign up for the family dinner. Family dinner sign up is where you go to sign up for the family dinner. Self-explanatory signs are helpful. So that's where you go to do that. Be a part of it. Make it a priority. Please be there. uh, And I will remind you as well the best I can throughout the next week. Now, eyes in Isaiah 57, but before we're there, uh, let me just kind of get you caught up. This is the second half of a two-idea sermon on God's transcendence and imminence. And if you are unfamiliar with those words, transcendence and imminence, a really simple way of understanding them is to say that transcendence means that God is overall up there. Transcendence means kind of very simply up there. And imminence means God is near down here. So up there and down here. And and the reason I wanted to do this now, these couple of weeks is because we are leading up to Easter. Just two weeks from today is Easter. And on Easter, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that is the most incredible thing that will ever happen. There's nothing that will ever happen in the universe better than that. Yet, most people aren't really celebrating that. So just, just, just think about this with me for a moment. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, and, and he did, everything has to turn on that. Nothing can be the same as it was after the resurrection. The whole universe now centers on that because what used to bind everybody, death, has been turned into not just kind of not death, but life. But that's not how it works, is it? Not everything turns on the resurrection of Jesus. Not everybody is giving themselves to the worship of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so last week, I read a little quote from a theologian named David Wells, where he said that God often seemed weightless in our world today. And that's such a good word for it, isn't it? That most people, the way that many people think about God is that he doesn't have any weight. He's weightless. Uh, You could say, you know, they they treat him insignificantly. He's unconsidered. He's ignored. But there's just something about that particular turn of phrase that that grabbed me. To most people, God is weightless. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there's never been anything that has tipped a scale like that and there never will be anything. Again. There, there, there's, it's so massive that you could put that on one side of a scale. Just imagine a scale. You could put that on one side. You could load everything else in the universe. Everything else onto the other side of the scale. And no matter what you put on there, the resurrection of Jesus will continue to outweigh it in significance and in glory and in prominence and meaning. And so, so my aim in these two weeks is to help us to know the weightiness of God, to see how grand he is. And that that sounds so simple, right? But, But what I'm asking God for just in these two weeks is that we would stand up in a little less than 40 minutes after sitting in here and we would have a greater conception of the majesty of God that we would trust more in his power, uh, and especially today, after what comes out of today, that we would have a longing to know him and to be known by him more. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping happens in 35, 40 minutes from right now, is we know more of him, we long to be known more by him, we trust more in his power. Last week, we started with transcendence. We were in Isaiah chapter 40. And from that, we saw three things. We saw that God is over creation. So there's nothing bigger than him. As far as the James Webb telescope can look into the galaxy and beyond the galaxy into the universe, God is greater and bigger still. The next thing we saw was God is over the nations, meaning whatever happens in this world, he's sovereignly reigning over us. God has not created the world or the universe and just left it to run. God is involved. And then the last thing we saw is that God is greater than any of the made up gods of this world. Uh, It's normal. Everybody is looking for a way to explain their life, your life, the the way that life... is put together. What is foolish is to look for something that comes from this world to do that. If, if we want to understand what's happening in the world, if we want to understand what's happening in our lives, we need to go to something beyond us. We need to go to the one who gave us life, who created the place that we live in, and then now that He remains God over that's how we're going to understand what this world is like, what our lives are supposed to be. We can't look around for other people wandering around with us. We have to look for the one who created us and who gives us meaning and purpose through life, through bearing the image of God. So that's what we saw in God's transcendence in Isaiah 40. Today, we're concentrating on God's imminence. He's down here near to us. How? Is he near to us? That's the question we're gonna ask. How is he near to us? And to start, let's start where we started last week as well. There's, there's a verse that, that really brings these two great, incredible truths of God's transcendence and imminence together. And that is in Isaiah 57, verse 15. So look there and follow along as I read. For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. He said, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So do do you hear them both there? High and lifted up. Eternal, holy. Those tell of his transcendence. Then I'm with the contrite and the lowly. That's the kind of of heart that that I, that the the Lord revives. So our God is high and holy and he's with the people that come humbly to him. And God is great because he's both. Now just, just think about it this way. Think about if he's just one, but not the other. A God of high, of high places. He's glorious, but he's so far beyond us. If God isn't near to us, he's just, he's just high and holy. He's beyond us. There's really no hope for us in, in that kind of a God. Somebody who's so far beyond us, we can't hope to, to, to have relationship with him. But in the same way, a God who, who we would say is with us, but he's nothing more than that. He's not high and lifted up. Well, that's not really any kind of God at all, is it? God has to be, for him to be the great God, he has to be the one who is on high and the one who is with the lowly and the contrite. So our God, the true God, is absolutely glorious and he's knowable because he's revealed himself to us. There's nothing greater than knowing God. There's nothing greater than knowing him. And I want you to listen very carefully to those words. I just want to say them one more time. There's nothing greater than knowing him. That sets up the rest of, of this morning. Knowing God is different than knowing about God. We don't want to just know about him. Learn a few things. Read a couple of Bible verses and and, and feel like there's a, a few facts about him that we know more about. We're offered relationship with him. We can know him. And so let's ask him for that and let's see him reveal himself to us We'll start in Isaiah 41. So flip over in your Bible to Isaiah 41. Last week in 40, this week in 41. And, and let me tell you as you're turning there to Isaiah 41, the three things that this says about God who is high and lifted up and who comes near to and he is with the humble. These are the three things we're going to see in Isaiah 41, 1-10. to First, God is always at work. Second, to know God, you have to look above this world for God. And third, knowing God brings peace. So, when we want to know God, the first thing we see is God is always there, He's always at work, He's always present. Number two, to see him, don't look around, look up. And three, God brings peace to his people who know him. God brings peace to his people who know him. So let's start Isaiah 41. God always is there. So Isaiah 41, starting at verse one, follow along in your own Bible as I read this. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw it near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. That's the end of the first section. To see the comfort for God's afflicted people, uh, we need to know the situation that this is first written into. So Isaiah prophesied before the fall of Jerusalem in Israel, but so he prophesied before the fall of Jerusalem, but much of what he said was written for people after that it already happened. Do you see that? So this is prophecy. He's writing saying this is going to happen and after it happens, you're going to need these words of instruction, of rebuke and of peace and of comfort. So God warns for a long time. The history of Israel goes like this. For a long time, God is warning the people that their corruption and their greed And their spiritual apathy and their idolatry mixing their worship with the false gods of other nations, it will lead to their destruction. And eventually that comes. It does come. First, it's the Babylonians who come and overrun Israel. And what happens after the Babylonians come is the people are taken away, they're scattered, and many of them are brought out of their homeland and they're taken into what's called exile. They're taken away from their homeland and they're brought to a foreign land to live there. But then what happens throughout the course of history is Babylon is in turn overtaken. So Babylon overtakes Israel and eventually Persia overtakes Babylon. So while the Israelites are in in Babylon, the Persian Empire, led by their king Cyrus, rises. And the question that the Israelites are now asking after being essentially conquered twice, is what happens to us from here? What happens now? Will we just forever be the subjects of other rulers? And so that's, that's the situation that God is speaking into. And he calls the people and he says, he says this. So first he says, listen to me in silence, O coastland." So he's doing two things. First, he's saying what is about to be said is actually for everybody. It's not just for Israel anymore. Much of Isaiah is for Israel, but there's a lot of Isaiah as well that's just for everybody. The coastlands are the key there. It's not just Israel. It's it's all over the place. Let's go all the way to the coast with what's about to be said. So the surrounding world is now involved. And when he says, "Listen in silence," he's not saying you never get to speak. He's saying Think carefully about what you want to say. Basically, listen. Consider it. Then respond. And and actually, the flow of this makes that that really clear. So first he says listen. And that's, that's how you gather strength. That's how you're known as a wise and understanding person. You don't just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. You listen and you consider, and then you respond. So think carefully. That's what he's saying. Think think carefully. Then, then approach. And so God says, you speak after that. And then God says, we will come to a decision together. This is different. This is really different than, than a lot of what the prophets bring. A lot of the prophets are just rebuke. A lot of the prophets are, you will listen, and I will tell you how it is. Here, so if you look at the end of verse one, it says, "Let us draw together, let us draw together, draw near, for judgment." And judgment in this context does not mean condemnation. It's not the judgment of guilt. It's judgment in the sense of a decision. It's in the sense of reaching a conclusion. So God is inviting people into a question, into a conversation. With him, so that not they're rebuked. Although that's plenty fine for God's people, sometimes He's inviting people into learn with Him and to seek Him and to be known by Him. He's inviting people into relationship with Him. And then, starting in verse two, God begins asking, "Who guides history? Who's over world events?" Even at the present time, who is working in the things that are happening to you right now? And the answer is God. The the last line says, God began these things and he will be the one to bring them to their right end. And he's starting here because he wants to make it abundantly clear that he's not only the Lord over the creation, He's intimately involved in every event within it. Nothing happens outside of the watchful eye or God's providential purpose. So if you want to know God, the first thing to know, the first assurance to have is that he's not detached. He is an involved God, present and at work. And we we have to start here too. One of the most tempting lies for believers, is to believe that we are on our own. That it's sort of us against the world. And folks, the first thing you need to know this morning is you're not alone. You are not alone. This starts by saying, listen so that your strength will be renewed. And what's the first thing that God says to begin renewing strength? I'm here. It's the first thing he says is I'm here. I'm making myself known and I'm making sure that you know that what is happening is happening because I'm behind it. Look look, look at those words again. Let the people renew their strength. God wants the people to be encouraged. His purpose now is to strengthen the people. Let them approach Then let them speak. Let us draw near together for judgment or decision. God invites us to come. He invites us to speak. He brings us together with him. I don't think I can overstate this. It is God who draws us in because God wants us with him. He wants us near. He wants us to know that he is with us. And so, as we... We start this. As you've come in this morning, the first thing to know is that God is here. Not just here in the room. He is. But where you go, there God goes with you. Probably more theologically accurate to say, where you go, God has already been. And still is. So if you wonder if you're alone, you are not. God is with you. Now let's move to verse 5. Again, the coastlands. So the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Now look at the connection that Isaiah is drawing. The first verse said God was speaking of everyone, so far, far as the coastlands. He was speaking to assure them, but instead it says that now they're afraid. What God meant for their assurance and their comfort, they are afraid of. Friends, we have when it comes to God, a decision to make. He is powerful. He is mighty. We can see just a glimpse of him and wonder, is he too big for me? Is he too much for me? What happens if I open myself to him? And many people get there and they turn back in fear. Many people get there and, 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 they, and they think, I, it, it's too much, I can't handle it. So they, they're afraid. But God says, don't do that. Press into me, you will not in me find fear, you will find comfort and peace. And, and the point that Isaiah was going for is if we are comforted by God's nonstop work, we will find peace in him, but there are others who won't. So make sure you keep pressing into God. And what what Isaiah says happens is instead of pressing toward God, they begin to look at each other for comfort. So they're afraid in the world, looking to the world for some kind of peace, but they're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. So verse six is very different than we're used to seeing as Christians. When it says everyone helps his neighbor and they're telling each other be strong, that's not a good thing. Usually as Christians, we think, well, help your neighbor, that's good. Strengthen one another, that's good. That's not the, read the context here. It's different. It's saying instead of looking up to God, they're looking out and they're trying to find comfort, that only should come from God. They're trying to find that from their neighbors. And, and they're trying to give one another some kind of relief by saying, well, you know, you know, be strong. But here, what Isaiah is saying, they have no basis for that. So if you were here last week, uh, Isaiah was talking about the futility of making little gods. He was asking the question, well, what are you going to worship? The true God Or are you going to worship something that you can make out of metal or something that you can hang on a chain around your neck? The same thing is happening here. These people are making gods. They're making little gods, little representations of gods. They're making up little stories about God, and then they're telling each other how good they are. They're saying, wow, what a a great God you've made. Oh, what a great story of a God you've told. Oh, that's really good. They're strengthening one another, but they're... But, but their strength is false. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's a false sense of hope, and ultimately, what they're doing is futile. What I think is Isaiah is looking back to the creation account from Genesis 1, where God, God calls everything that he made good, and he's saying, What you're trying to do is make something and say it's good. But only God can make something and say that it's truly good. So don't think what you've made is good. Look to God and know that what he's made is good. God is the one who comforts and brings peace. But you're not going to find him by looking around the world. You will only find him by looking beyond the world. That doesn't mean he's not here or present or close. But he's not of the stuff of this world. We can't make anything that's like him. And any time that we try to find a hope apart from him, it's going to be temporary and small, and it's going to lack any real power. It won't stay. It can't make it. So you might ask, is there any conflict between saying God is imminent and saying that we have to look uh, above the world for God? The answer is no. There's there's no conflict there. So think back to where we started in in Isaiah 57, 15. God's high and lifted up, inhabiting eternity, and he's with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. So we just ask the question, how, how is that possible? It's possible because God inhabits all that he's created. So he's present on his throne in heaven and he's present with his people on earth. It says this a couple of places in the Bible, but but here's one of them. Deuteronomy 4.39 says this really well. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Now that's supremely seen in, in Jesus Christ, God in, incarnated as a man. The name that, that God gives Jesus in Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 is Emmanuel, which in both of those places, just the Bible just tells us, means God with us. And this is where you get the clarity that God above can also be God below, one and the same. The coming of Jesus was not just God coming to this location. More, it was so much more than God walking the earth. God coming as Jesus was God coming to deliver us from sin and death. So when we talk about God's presence, we're not just saying that God is sort of here around us, we're saying that God is here to save us. And his presence, his imminence, goes far beyond to do that, to, to do that saving, a, a physical closeness. If you have confessed your sins... And you believe that Jesus has paid for them on the cross with his death. And he's traded places with you in death as punishment for your sin. Now because he died, we died. And because he lives, we lives. And so we don't just say as Christians. If that describes you, if you've done that. We don't just say that we're near to Christ. The Bible just doesn't say that we're near to Christ. It actually says with the language it uses that we are in Christ that's the nearness of God to his people we have been united with him that's how present God is for us not just within arm's length not just here in the sense that we inhabit the same space here to save here to be so that we might be in him to have a union with him where his death has become our death so that his life can be our life. So God is near and always at work, and God is the one we go to for peace and comfort. So let's look at that last one. God is the one we go to for peace and comfort. How does the imminence of God come up in these last few verses? Let's finish that. I'll just read starting at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. These are just different names for the people of God. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. Same thing. Israel, Jacob, Abraham, same group of people. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. This is such a good verse. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All right, most of us will go to verse 10 because it's so good, and you should. But this starts, this starts in verse eight. It actually, verse 10 is better because of verse eight. It says, but God's people are now gonna be just contrasted with the nations. They try to find, they, the nations, they try to find smaller gods, gods, but those who know God, know they've been chosen and called out by a mighty God who will help you and who will uphold you. So what God is saying is that when he is near, when he comes to be with us and he brings us to himself, we have no more reason to be afraid because he is our God. Anxiety can be such a a troublesome temptation. And I I know that it is for me. We see so many things. The world today has become so hard with this. that, that. the constant news cycle and social media, knowing friends, you get the email updates about somebody who has suffered in some way. And, and so more than at any point in human history, we are aware of all the things that could come for us. And it builds in us a fear. And this is precisely where God is saying now that we've swerved. Anxiety is looking everything else but God. The strength that God brings is found when we look at him. Uh, There's a verse in Philippians that that people often go to for comforts. Philippians 4, 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything. But the force uh, of that Verse, the, the, really the bedrock that comes from it is, is the couple of verses before it. The two verses before Philippians 4 6 say, Rejoice in the Lord, for he is at hand. That's why it makes sense to have peace in the face of anxiety, because God is at hand. God is imminent. This is the same thing being held out to us in Isaiah 41.10. God brings peace through knowing him. Uh, There was a a monk named Brother Lawrence who described the difference between anxiety in the world and peace in Christ this way. He lived a long time ago, but but this is an ever-present problem for people. He said the difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them through faith or unbelief, that makes them seem so. So the difference is through faith or through unbelief. We must be convinced that our Father is full of love for us and that he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Let us occupy, this is his solution, this is Brother Lawrence's solution. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may it be so. May we occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. And one of the things is that in times of distress, or in times of joy, we will learn to love Him and cling to Him equally, and that's the hope, isn't it, that for the Christian life? That in times of great joy, or in times of distress, that we would distress that we would equally cling to our God, love and practice His presence. So, if you're a person like me who struggles with the unbelief of anxiety and fear, I just want to point you one more time to the contrast in verse ten. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah just said that, that the gods the world tries to make can't hold up. We have to ask this question. Is, is your fear, is my fear, because we're trusting in something other than the true, mighty, righteous God? are you trusting in something else? And if that's eye-opening or convicting to you, uh, I want you to know two things. Number one, you're not the only one. Anxiety is something that comes from many of us. And two, our God is enduringly gracious. Take your fear, your anxiousness to him and confess it, knowing that he will not turn you away in anger or disgust or frustration, but that he will draw you in, show you his love for you, and he will remain your God. He will not turn you away. He will uphold you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. He wants this. He wants you to come to him because he wants to uphold you. And there's nothing that should give us more comfort and hope than a God who wants to be near to us. To be brought by God into Christ is the greatest grace you will ever receive and the most marvelous gift you will ever be given. And if you're unsure about drawing near to him, if you wonder what that means to draw near to him, let me just give you Hebrews 4.16 as an invitation. Because Jesus has become the mediator between God and us, it says there, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The presence of the Lord brings peace. The joy of the Lord is our strength, whether in difficulty, in distress, or whether in times of great celebration, nearness to God, is the hope of all Christians. So may it be so for us. It is great that God has come near. Let's pray. God, you are present in this place and in your transcendence You can do that both as Lord of heaven and as ruler of this earth. And so we have confidence that you are always at work, always near to us. We look beyond the the petty things and the simple, small things of this world to you. And we pray that where we might be fearful, we would come to you for strength and help, being upheld by your hand, for you are the one who says that we should not be dismayed. You are our God. We have no other because there is no better. In your name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.